Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode number 16 of the Nathan Seawood Show. The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men. Hey guys, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I hope you're having a great week. And boy, it's the end of March already. I can't believe it. Three months into the year. It's a quarter of the year gone already. How are you doing? Are you getting through your goals? Go back and review your uh, goals that you set in January and see how you're doing. It's a good time to check back. Uh, this week on the show, I have a wonderful guy, Nigel Atkinson, who's going to talk all about his life's journey and exploring the uh, the mask that we live in uh, as men, and I'm looking forward to talking about that. First, I want to um, touch on something that's been coming up a lot for me with different people, two words, loneliness and awareness. The first one, loneliness. Now, uh, this is a really common thing for a lot of people. It's a, a part of the human condition is being lonely. We don't like being alone. We're social animals. Um, and I've experienced this myself. I wrote an article, and some of you saw it on Facebook this week, called The Magical Cure for Loneliness. And the thing is, in a relationship, that's the best time to work on yourself because your best teacher is the person that you live with because they are going to show up all of your stuff. They're going to push all your buttons, and there's no hiding from your partner. So that's the best place to grow uh, as a human is in a relationship. But the second best place, if you're not in a relationship, is to work on loneliness because it's what we do with loneliness that actually has us get in trouble in our relationships because at the core, we don't want to be lonely, and so that's what makes us needy. That's what makes us... um, do the silly things we do to try and get attention from people or attention from our partner. So if you can really be with loneliness and understand your loneliness and be comfortable with your loneliness, that is a huge growth opportunity. But what do we normally do? We feel lonely. We want to make it go away. So we ring up our friends or we text our ex or we go on to Tinder or Grinder or whatever it is and get a quick hookup just to try and get rid of that feeling of loneliness. Brings me on to my second word, which is awareness. And you'll notice every man that comes on the show in some way mentions the word awareness. And so what does that mean? It means the start of any change comes from being aware of a behavior that you have. So most of the time we're blasting through life and we don't walk around with a mirror in front of us so we don't know how we act. We think we know, but the reality is 90% of what we do is automatic. And it takes uh, a coach or a counselor or a really close friend to be able to point out to you that you're doing something or doing things a certain way or repeating a certain behavior. And boy, this is so present for me. Um, Just a small thing even. This week I just noticed how often I say that I want something and then I completely do the opposite. You know, I say I want to have a six-pack, but actually what I want to do is just have the freedom to eat whatever I want throughout the day and, you know, watch TV. And uh, I keep saying... um, I want to live this extraordinary life, yet I find it so hard to leave my job to go and do that. I just stay doing the same thing. So that's just a small thing for me. But now I'm aware of that behavior. I'm aware that I have a propensity to say that I want something and then not take any action towards it. So now I'm on high alert for that kind of action. So you see the first step is awareness. And just to tie those two things together, when you're feeling lonely, try sitting in the loneliness So become aware of your loneliness. So instead of rushing off to get drunk, rushing off to do drugs, rushing off to fill the space of loneliness, 
try sitting in it and just be aware of what comes up. Try and be aware of where that's coming from. Where's that feeling of loneliness? Is it a feeling of inadequacy? Is it a feeling of insecurity? Do you have a low self-esteem? Try and bring up the awareness of what you're doing, what you're feeling, where you're feeling it in your body, is it in your stomach, your chest. Just try and bring some awareness around your loneliness. And that's the first step to overcoming it and understanding it. And, of course, in that article you read, I mentioned that uh, after loneliness comes connection. Uh, so the next step, once you feel aware of it, reaching out and starting to be vulnerable with someone close to you. Now, you have to pick the right person. I hear often hear people say, well, I was vulnerable with my parents and I told them all this stuff and they just dismissed it and they didn't get it and everything. Well, be careful who you choose. Sometimes your parents are not the best person. Sometimes a really close friend that you know and love is a much better person to open up and be vulnerable with. Of course, someone like a coach or something like that is number one because they're trained and listening and understanding and deeply seeing you without trying to solve your problems. But um, not everyone can afford a coach, so reaching out to a close friend or um, Robert Glover calls it a, a safe person too. Start sharing and start being vulnerable and telling your story can go a long way. So those are my um, words of wisdom for the week. Vulnerability uh, leads to connection. Uh, be aware of your loneliness and your patterns. And we're going to talk more about that with uh, today's guest, Nige Atkinson, because when I asked Nige at the start of the interview, I said, what do you want to talk about today? What do you want to give the people out there? What do you want to share? And he said, you know what? I just want to share my story, and I want my story to... Um, to be its own gift to the listeners. And I thought, well, beautiful. So I just sat back and let Nige uh, tell his story, which is an incredible story. It's very sad. It has a sad beginning, very similar to Tom Fitzsimons. Had a very tough upbringing with uh, a couple of huge things that defined him, and you'll hear about. And then that led him into a lot of violence, violence against partners, violence against uh, other people in his life, which is... Um, hard to listen to it actually brought me to tears in this episode at one point um, which is the first for uh, for the podcast uh, and then Nige really um, goes into depth about what he's done to overcome it how he's brought awareness to his issues so I asked Nige to tell uh, some stories about his upbringing and some of the stories that defined uh, who he was as an adult so enjoy this very, very deep personal conversation with the powerful Nia Jackinson. And then when I was six years old, this was in, when was this, 1975, I was involved in a fight with a boy at school and I was kicked in the testicles really hard. And I, I, I was the the day it happened. I rem, I can still remember it. I'm, this fight took place. I was kicked by this young boy, and I I felt this excruciating pain, and it went beyond just being knocked. If you know what I mean, um, I knew something was wrong. I was only young. I was six years old, and I kind of knew something wasn't right. And uh, I remember going, the, the teacher was down in the library. The reason why this fight broke out was the teacher wasn't around. She was down in the library reading to the girls in the library. And I remembered having to go into this library and tell this teacher in front of these girls that what had happened and that something was wrong. 
And even then, I remember at that young age, the shame I felt having to walk into that space and disclose that. Um, it was horrendous. And she kind of came out of the class and she said, I'm going to take you home. And she took me home and within, I don't know if it happened immediately, but I I was, uh, I think I was left for, I might be wrong if, if it, it actually happened immediately, but I, I, I was taken home and, and shortly after I was taken into hospital. Um, and the next thing I knew, I... I woke up. I woke up in a hospital bed with a cage across me, um, and again, a bit like with the croup, you know, with the cough and the the breathing problem. One of the first things I remember was I felt alone. There was no one around. My parents weren't there at that time, and all I remember was I was bandaged up below the waist. Um, and at that point I didn't, I was young and I, and, and when they used to give you anesthetic back in the day, you were sick, you know, it was the gas mask. Um, and so obviously once I'd overcome all the vomiting, I was in excruciating pain. So something had happened. Um, and it was only when I'd been released and gone home that I overheard my mum having a conversation with my auntie and she basically said that I'd lost the testicle as a result of the the kicking that had took place and the operation that had followed and that, you know, my life was at risk. And so I was playing at the top of the stairs with my cousin and I remembered overhearing it and I didn't quite get what she was really talking about. I knew something wasn't right. But I so there was really never know. a moment where they told you it was just no they never they never told me did they and say why you're in hospital or that you were unwell no or? no no wow. I didn't get no to conversation it. That's no, no conversation no conversation as far as I can remember yeah sure uh, uh, you know and I, I, and and so I remembered being like in this young body hearing these words feeling this pain knowing something was wrong and I didn't quite know what had happened I didn't even know what testicles were <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I knew something was wrong and it felt strange. Mm. And what happened was um, what I was uh, rehabilitated during my period where I was rehabilitating. Two operations actually took place. But during this first period of rehabilitation, before I went back to school, my grandma one day, she took me into into the local town um, and she worked at a gents outfitters. And two of the gents who worked there, they they came over to me and they, they, I still remember it to this day and I'm looking up at them. I was six years old and they're looking down at me and they said, they said, you're such a brave little, you know, and I just looked straight back at them. I said, I'm not brave. I'm just the old man out. And for me, the moment I said that line, it changed the course of my life. I, I didn't realize at the time, you know, when I said it, that it was going to impact me in the way it did as to what was to come, what was to follow those words. And I think to them, they found it quite endearing. You know, it was a oh, bless him. You know, did you hear what he just said? Said he was the odd man out. I still didn't even really know what had happened at that point. Um, so that that was kind of the start for me. 
And then I returned to school. Well, what happened was shortly after the doctor said, well, we'll just check the other testicle, make sure it's okay. So they, they took me back into hospital again and operated on the other testicle just to make sure I was okay. And um, I remembered that day very clearly when I was being driven to the hospital, I swear to God, I thought I was being driven to some kind of, uh, like I was being driven to, uh, like I was going to be electrocuted on death row or something. You know, we, I, I remember the car passing under Bolton Street Bridge and feeling absolute terror about what was going to happen. And again, I couldn't speak about it. I was confused. I didn't really know what was going on. So I didn't really know what was, I knew what was coming the second time, but luckily the second time they checked it and I didn't lose the other testicle. I'd just lost the one. Um, so it wasn't really spoken about. You know, I spoke with my dad many years later about what had happened. And he said, well, you know, it was frightening for us as well as parents. And we, we didn't really know what to do. He said, you know, and, and what do you do in that situation? He said, so we didn't, we shelved it thinking that you'd have a better chance. But unfortunately, then the knock on effect from that for me was massive as a yeah. kid. So when do you start um, to feel the impact? When do you actually understand the reality of what had happened to you or what that meant for you? I think when I returned to school, you know, and the, the, the again, it's, it's, it's bizarre when you look back, you know, the, the headmaster, uh, obviously he wasn't, you know, the headmaster was very much the, the ex-colonel in the army. And, he, you know, he, was, he, he used to hang the cane on the Christmas tree at Christmas and then leather someone if they spoke in assembly. You know, it was around that time when it was OK to beat kids up, basically. Mm. And, uh, and I remember we all gathered in assembly this particular day and normally he'd tell his army stories and we'd all fall asleep and, and so on. And and um, this particular day, he decided he was going to mention what had happened to me. And, oh, wow. Uh, he told the whole school. He told the whole fucking school. Right. In, and I remember sitting there thinking, I want to die. This is horrible. Oof. You know, and he, he told the whole school and he did it with the best of intentions. And what he said was kicking is now banned. In this school, as a result of this incident, kicking his band. Well, as you can imagine, I'm walking out of assembly that day and all the kids are like, what's it like? I'm like, what do you mean, what's it like? They're like, well, what's it like? Like having what you've had done, you know, you've lost the testicle or whatever. But I don't think they actually put it like that at that age. I don't think we'd had sex education, had we really at that point? Um, but yeah, they, they, they start asking you the questions. And supposedly my sister... And I don't remember it, but my sister supposedly stood up in that assembly said to the headmaster, I'm going to tell my mum about you. <laughs> <laughs> and my mum went to the school, I think. She visited the school. I found this out later, and they took it up with the headmaster about why he disclosed this information in front of the whole school. Now, at the time, you know, growing up as a young boy, I, I didn't really... Um, uh, I, I just got on with it, you know. I I I, I did all what other kids were doing. I played in the football team. I I did all the regular stuff, and there was no real, apart from the odd comment, there was never really any name calling. There was none of that. Um, it, I I didn't really experience too much of that. I do remember feeling strange growing up. I started to feel, uh, you know, the the uh, just even moments of feeling lonely, you know, and feeling different and, and thinking that there was something different about me. And 
occasionally there was the odd taunt. So when it came around to that time to leave and to move on to secondary school, I, I was thinking, well, maybe this is a chance for a fresh start, you know, because I think in the back of my mind, I always had in the back of my mind that everybody knew what had happened to me. So I was always slightly on my guard about it. And then I went to secondary school and it, it was and it was at that point um, that things really started to change. You know, um, I, I I was, well, I mean, at that time I was, how old would I have been? I was 13, I think. And uh, I remembered it's hard enough when you walk into a secondary school and you don't know anybody apart from the odd friends you had, you know, at the other school. And you see all these strange faces. But I think about three days in, to secondary school, I was I was on a lunch break. I remembered walking. I, I was walking up one of the paths with somebody, and um, a young girl approached me who I'd never seen before, and she kicked me in the testicles. Wow! And um, she basically, I remembered falling to the floor, and she just looked down at me, smiling, and she said, "Oh, I heard you had one ball. I just wanted to check." Oh, brutal. And in that moment, I. I, I just, I, I swear to God, I wanted to die. It was like, I cannot, I, I, I kind of knew what was coming. I, I'm three days into secondary school. It's like my life The worst changed. possible scenario. It's the worst possible scenario. I... And you've now made every man listening cringe for the second time in the podcast. Yeah, yeah. And each time things like that happened, it was like, a part of me died. It was like I felt myself shrink a little bit more. It was like, whatever you do, don't talk about this. Don't tell a soul. You'll get through this. Um, and so from that time on, it got, you know, for example, I got into the school football team because I was a good left winger and they knew I was a good left winger. And, and I went to the trials and they said, well, you're going to be in the team. And what happened was shortly after that, we obviously started playing and doing very well. And word must have got out about me having one testicle. And I used to have to, I remember very clearly one time going to one of the matches with the team on the bus and they were basically singing songs about me at the back of the bus on the way to the match. And so by the time I, it came for me to go out onto the field and perform, I fell apart. You know, I, I just was so racked with guilt and shame. I just couldn't play properly. And what was really interesting, I was telling my wife about this last week. I started to get this incredible pain in, in the testicle that was left. Like this searing, acute pain through it that prevented me from playing football. Mm. It was almost like I'd brought about some kind of symptoms to get me out of the team. To get me away from so much focus on that area, (laughs) yeah, exactly. Well, they say, don't they? What you focus on all day long is what you become. And at that point, I think I was very much in that mode of thinking I was a freak, and that you know I was the odd man out. Um, So does this lead to a sense of? Can you relate to depression, or is this just a sense of kind of trying to protect yourself? Yeah, I was initially trying to protect myself. Then what happened um, when I was around age, uh, what was I? I was probably around age, again, around that year, around that first year, secondary school. 
I started to have panic attacks. And what used to happen was my heart used to race. And um, I always remember the first one I ever had. It was really poignant because it was Easter. And we were watching Jesus of Nazareth on the TV at my grandma's. And um, my... I started having this panic attack when Jesus was being crucified. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what, you know, there was something in me, whether I related to that because I felt like I was being crucified myself. And I had this panic attack. And I remember my dad saying to me, he said, come on, lad. He said, we'll get you to the hospital and we'll get your ticker checked out. And it was only many years later when I was probably close to 40 that they realized I'd got a heart condition. Um, and that I'd been living with a risk of sudden death for most of my life. Oh, was that related uh, to the, the, the croup uh, that you uh, had when you were younger, uh, or was that possibly, separate? I'm, I'm not sure. It was uh, a, I was diagnosed with something called Wolf-Parkinson's-White syndrome, which meant I had a second pathway in my heart that couldn't regulate the heartbeat. Um, but what happened as a result of the the... Uh, uh, when that used to happen to me, as I got, because it tends to become more apparent when when uh, a young boys or a young girls round about thirteen, fourteen. So obviously, I started to have these attacks, and around that time, I I went to the doctor, and he's like, "Look, this is what you need to do," and he, he kind of showed me some moves to press on my neck and how you can prevent this from happening. But there was never a space to talk, really talk about it. Mm. Anyway, these continued and it became really debilitating as a young boy because I kept having these panic attacks. And meanwhile, at school, I've got everybody singing songs about me, calling me one, but I, I honestly, it was a horrendous situation. And yeah. I, um, so what happened was they said, have right, you got we're friends as well there? Have you, have you got uh, uh, someone on your side as well? Or are yeah, you just completely isolated? Yeah. Of course I had. I mean, you right. know, you, we all make friends, but one, one of the things which became really apparent for me and I only really realized it many years later when I watched the film The Lost Boys in the 80s that that I I really see that most of my friends that that were around me at that time were kind of uh fraying at the edges a bit broken kind of <laughs> misfits <laughs> and they were almost like for me it was like I uh, for some reason them are the kind of people I attracted um and people like you People like me, exactly, or what I believe myself to be at the time. Yeah. So anyway, my my mum and dad said we're going to take. We're, the doctor suggested we're going to take you to see a psychiatrist. So off I went to see Mrs. Black, and uh, I think I had two or three visits with her. And at the time, my mum was going into hospital for an operation, and. Obviously, I was worrying about that. I seemed to worry about everything. But what they did, they they wrapped everything up in a neat little box as quick as they could. And they said, well, the reason you're having your panic attacks is because your mum's having the operation and you're worrying about it. Well, you don't need to do that anymore. Okay, great. There was no space really to talk about what was happening for me at school, you know, or, you know, any of that. There was no space to talk about no anything. No mention of really. the F word, feelings. No mention of feelings. It was almost like I went and she was going, well, we're not going to really let you talk. We're just going to give you the answer. <laughs> you know, yeah. this is what, do this, do what it says on the can here and you'll be fine. So for a while I was okay. But um, I I really, um, it, it beca especially as I got more towards 15, 16, you know, and, I'm, and, and 
I'm really trying to, you know, at that point I'm, I'm attracted to girls and it became really, really difficult. I became really, I, I got really scared around the whole thing, you know, and there were people around me, guys, they were bragging about everything, you know, and they were, they were, they were all, they all had girlfriends and they were all doing their own thing. Um, but it was very, very difficult for me. I remember the first girl that I was attracted to, she, she actually said yes. And we went on a date and I actually couldn't kiss her. I was that frightened. And, uh, she finished with me and then that became this thing again. It obviously kids talk and it got round and suddenly it was like, Oh, you're that guy who didn't even kiss her. What the hell's wrong with you? You know? And, and so on and on we went with this, um, with this, you know, it was it was like a, a I felt like I was in some kind of wash cycle, you know. I couldn't get out of it. And I feel uh, like this concept of being the odd man out just hangs yeah. with you through every interaction that you have. It, it did, and I think it was compounded by um, something I didn't mention earlier. Was was when I was ten years old, the neighbour sexually abused me, mm. and so I got this whole thing happening with the testicle thing, and then I was abused and. Again, that was something I never told anybody about for 13 years. So it was something I kept to myself, you know, and and, um, uh, there was just an incredible fear around being perceived as weak. And and, uh, I, I just, I felt so much guilt and shame. It was like, why would anyone want to listen to me? Why would anyone want to hear my story? Why would anyone want to hear about the pain I'm going through? And why so, did you feel that? Why was it that particular feeling? I think it I think it's just something that was instilled into me from being very young. You know, that message that you get that it's like, you know, you, you basically have to shut up and put up. Mm. You know, it's like we're giving them messages at a very, very young age. You know, this is what you need to be to be a man now. You've got to move on. It's like move on. I haven't even explored this yet. I haven't even talked about it. You know, I, I and, and so there's all these feelings going on inside me swirling around. And at that it time was the, the abuse repeated or was that a one-off incident? I'm not or? sure. I, I'm not, I'm not sure. Mm. <laughs> it's difficult. I, I, I didn't, uh, you know, it was a neighbor. It was, it was again, a story that it was what followed it. She was a friend of the family, a, a huge Austrian lady who, who had claimed she'd been in the concentration camps during the war and she'd lost her children in the war. And, and, I really got the impression looking back at it that I became almost a replacement for a dead son. And initially what started out as a beautiful friendship turned very sour. She was very, very demanding of the family and especially my dad doing odd jobs for her around the house and one thing and another. And one time he got sick and uh, and there was all this screaming and shouting. And then my parents walked in the house and said, you never speak to her again. And that was that. Mm. And after that, uh, she turned. And she became psycho. I mean, it was frightening. It was it was really frightening as a kid growing up, witnessing this woman banging on the walls in the middle of the night and screaming and shouting and putting glass in the gutters and popping children's footballs. And, and it, it was relentless, this woman acting out. Yeah, petrifying. One of the most frightening moments that happened for me, Nathan, was... Um, I, I remember one time it had been snowing outside and I, I was upstairs in the toilet on uh, the upstairs. Well, there was only one toilet. I was in the bathroom and she, this woman was out in the garden ranting and raving in this Austrian accent, you know, screaming and shouting that some boys had thrown snowballs at her window. And 
And then the next minute I heard her mention my name. And she said, as clear as day, she said, and you, she said, Nigel, in her Austrian accent. And she said, if I get hold of you, I'll break your neck. Whoa. I was 10 years old. And I still, I was sat on the toilet, frozen to the spot with sweat running down my back, thinking, I'm going to be murdered. This is insane. And in that moment, my dad, as a result of everything that was happening with this woman, my mum started to have a breakdown. And in that moment, my dad came into the bathroom and he said, have you been throwing snowballs at her window? I said, no, I wasn't there. And he hit me. He hit me. He said I was lying. And uh, I, I, again, in that moment, it was like, in some way, I felt responsible for what my mum was going through. I got this massive struggle going on inside myself with everything that was going on with the testicle thing and the sexual abuse. And then here, the one person who I look up to, who I love, he's hitting me and blaming me for something I didn't do. And uh, we moved shortly after, you know, that was on the doctor's suggestion. <laughs> we moved mm. and... I was so frightened of this woman that when, you know, over in this country in the churches, they do a, a, a walking day uh, for, um, I forgot what they call it, for is it Palm Sunday or something like that? And everybody gets dressed up and you walk around the streets and it, it's a very a big church day out thing, really. And I always remember this particular year, they said they were going to walk down our street. And I remember being absolutely terrified of walking down my own street for fear of seeing this woman. Um, and, uh, we did it. And the last time I saw her at that point, I remember was when we were moving and I was in the back of the van and I stuck two fingers up at her <laughs> as, as the car was pulling away. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> because, because I knew I was going, you know, the final farewell. It was like the final farewell. Fuck yeah. you. You know, it was full on. And uh, so that was that. And that had gone on. And I didn't really talk about that. But I think what happened was I think all this stuff started to compound. So when they finally took me to the doctors and the psychiatrist and all the rest of it, initially, when they took me to the doctors again, and rather than actually giving me a space to talk about it, they pumped me with Valium. Mm. And they left me on the sofa for two weeks in a catatonic state, not even knowing what day of the week it was. And how old are you at this point? 13. Wow. Um, and and so they just left me there saying, you know, he'll be fine soon. <laughs> mm-hmm. it, it was a really hard time, Nathan. I feel it, as I'm speaking to you now, it, is, it feels upsetting even talking about it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That, that I just felt very alone growing up. Very yeah, alone. Just being, just being so young, like it's it's so hard to imagine, you know, the – well, yeah, yeah, just the the harshness of the whole thing. Yeah, the lack of yeah. empathy, the lack of connection, the lack of sympathy. Yeah, yeah. At that point, I I I started to experience flashes of rage. And you know, one of the things I used to watch as a boy, which I really related to, was the Incredible Hulk. Yeah. I really love that program. I and, and I and at the same time, I it really saddened me. I kind of related to him, 
because at the end of the uh, end of each series, I don't know if you remember. Do you remember he, he'd have he'd, he'd sort of be walking away with the music playing, the piano, with his like stuff sack full of shirts that he kept having to change. In. <laughs> <laughs> but I only found out later that 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 actual um, that piano theme and that was called "A Lonely Man," and I really related to the to him. I really yeah. did, and I also related to the flashes of rage I was feeling in myself. And I didn't fully understand them, but when they came up in me, they I felt completely overwhelmed by it. And so I spent many years just off and on trying to keep the lid on that. I'd had a few moments at school, you know, where fights break out. And um, But the one thing that seemed to happen to me was even though I didn't consider myself a violent person, when somebody pushed me over the edge, it was that whole line, don't make me angry. You won't like me when I'm angry. Mm. And I... I just didn't know how to stop when did I started. Did you have a break? Like, did, you, did, you, did the anger actually come out or was it yeah. something that you yeah, managed to suppress? Uh, I managed to suppress it quite well at school because I think I fluctuated between being bullied and occasionally having a fight and completely pummeling someone. You know, um, I mean, I remember the first fight I ever had really was at primary school and I remember hearing the sound of my fist hitting this kid's face and I couldn't stop. It was just, I just felt so pent up and so mm. much anger about what was happening. I then had another fight when I was just going to knock somebody out and I was only young. And then it, the few fights I had, I was just out of control, really. And for the biggest part, like you said, I kind of pushed the lid on it. It was like I, I was trying to control this whole like rage inside of me. Um, and so it sometimes would come out sideways comments you know one of the things i found was you know if people were picking on me bullying me then maybe i could pick on people who were looked a bit weaker than me yeah. you know um i feel i was really confused i didn't really know what i was doing it and, sounds like um, you were i'm guessing just from talking to you, you were probably quite a um sensitive big-hearted person you know as a child yeah. and yeah. then to have all these things just keep happening you know it's yeah. so challenging for a a little boy so challenging yeah. to deal with those things yeah yeah it was it, it, and confusing it, felt, it was confusing and uh and i felt incredibly sad as well you know around that time i made friends with a dog in the neighborhood it, 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 it was really bizarre I, we couldn't have a dog because my my dad was sensitive to dogs and i always wanted one and i remember this particular day and it had been snowing and i was just opening the front door and i saw this black labrador run across the road down the side of the road and i just looked at the labrador and it was straight away it was like he turned around and looked at me and it was like oh we're going to see more of each other it was weird wow. and then about two minutes later there was a knock at the door and the neighbor said we've just got a dog if you want to walk it come across i said can i start now <laughs> anyway over we went and uh, i i became best friends with this black labrador and we used to walk in a local cemetery um a huge cemetery nearby and i walked in that cemetery in any weather trying to figure out what was happening for me and i remember sometimes sitting amongst them gravestones crying and, and the dog licking my eyes and wow. just for me he was it, it sounds absolutely mad but i really I, I used to tell him everything what was happening and i always remember one of the places we used to hide where no one could find us on the grave it was the shakespeare quote it said in the midst of life we are in death 
And I actually felt like I was in a living death, to be honest with you. Mm. And so that became a big part of my life, did the dog. It's just interesting. I'm interested to hear this, the theme that I'm, I'm hearing. and I'm interested to hear your opinion is this, yeah. you're the only one that knows what's going on. So you're the only one sure. that knows about the, the bullying at school and the torture about having the one testicle. You're mm. the only one that's dealing with this crazy woman next door, you know, mm. getting hit by your dad, the, the sexual abuse. And yet, you know, all of that stuff, nobody knows about all of those things mm. are happening at the same time, but you. And so everybody, like a psychiatrist, sees you. She doesn't know any of that background. Just goes, no. oh, well, it must be this thing about your mum going to hospital. So, you know, yeah. you'll be right, lad. Yeah. And yeah. I guess that, that must be a common theme for a lot of young people. Yeah. And not having that tool, not having that tool to express yourself, not, not being able to go, hey, actually, don't be so hard on me. You know, this is actually what's going on for me. Yeah. I think more so for men. For boys. Mm. And again, you know, because of this foul silence that we live under, you know, this silent code of conduct, basically, that we're told to man up, shut up and put up, basically. That's what being a man is, you know, strong and silent. Really? Mm. Yeah. How come the suicide rate's so bloody high then? You know, there's nothing strong about that. It might be silent. Yeah, so you mentioned the vow of silence. So we, yeah. where does this come from? I mean, where does the... Where does it, um, it trace back to? Well, I think, you know, for me, it came about when I started writing the book, you know, and when the title came, Odd Man Out, which obviously I've spoken about, Breaking the Vowed Male Silence, that was the other line that came out. And what I likened it to was the, um, you remember the, the, the scandal in the cycling world with Lance Armstrong around the doping. Yeah. And the, it was the first time I ever, I ever heard the word omerta which is a Latin term for, for code of silence. And it's something that originated in the mafia, um, which is basically you don't tell on anyone and it's punishable by death. And that even means your enemies as well. You don't tell on no one. And so I started to sort of liken what I was going through as a man to that, to a murder and started to explore that and what that could mean and where that's left, not just me, but men in general. Yeah, beautiful. And so that was, uh, yeah, I want to yeah. talk about that. And just just take me through a little bit of adulthood because I'm fascinated to know where it goes from there. So as you move into <laughs> adulthood, you know, how yeah. does how do these things play out? Because you know, like so many of the guests on this podcast, they don't really figure this stuff out and find themselves no. until much later in life. So yeah, how do you yeah. get uh, between this this um, very damaged little boy to? someone that's now helping to heal men uh, through breaking the vow of silence? Well, it's been a long journey. Um, I I think, um, you know, when I left school, I at that point I was pretty messed up, <laughs> as you can probably imagine, you know, as a result of everything that was happening. And, I mean, I'm painting a picture here saying, you know, I just want people to know it wasn't like that every day. But, you know, I did struggle off and on with depression, anxiety, you know, panic attacks. They were still happening. Um, and life felt very, very dark for me. And when I left school, um, my mum, she got me a job in the local factory. And, uh, oh, boy, that was a harsh environment. And... Uh, I, I worked in a, 
I worked in a factory uh, doing, um, you know, these bakery pans that like bread tins, like straightening mm. out bread tins that you bake bread in. Um, and so our, our job was to glaze the pans and straighten them and, and so on and so forth uh, and to press them out and square them out again. And she got me this job and they were some of the longest days in my life. I was incredibly depressed. And I I remember being going into work at, 7 a.m. I think it was in the morning and look and and almost like saying look I won't look at my watch I won't look at my watch for a while because it'll be break time soon and and it had seemed like a day had gone by and I'd look at my watch and it'd be 7.01 and I'd have to stand at this press all day and straighten out these baking pans and you know press them and it was like i don't even know how to straighten out my life here i don't even know what the hell's going on and around that time i started i st- uh, it, it, this is again i talk about attracting a similar situation uh, I, a man in the factory started bullying me who was probably he was probably in his early 30s i'd say i was 17 um and he bullied me basically he was pretty cruel. And at that time, people started writing things about me on the toilet walls, calling me queer and and all that stuff. And uh, again, very, very difficult time. So I eventually we it, it reached critical mass. And one day he physically attacked me and I basically turned into the Hulk <clears throat> and I ended up throwing a baking pan through the office window um, through the glass and completely lost it. I mean, lost it. I didn't know where I was. It was just red mist. I got suspended and he was sacked later. They discovered what he'd done. And then in very, uh, what was really fascinating was the moment he got sacked, everybody who was actually on my side turned against me. Mm. And so it was hell on earth, you know? And, um, uh, around that time, I um, I discovered bodybuilding. Uh, you know, my I, 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 at that point I was drinking really heavily. I was going out and basically getting pissed, really pissed. You know, I I I figured that the only way I could cope with my life was to get obliterated. And 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 my mask tended to be really humorous. You know, I'd, the way I showed up in the world was very much like a dickhead, and. Yet when I was on my own, I, I really hated living with myself. I, I really, I, I used to really struggle, you know, in my own skin. I used to feel uncomfortable and awkward in my own skin. I just couldn't cope. And at this point, how did that still- look for you? Like, how does you know look when those moments when you're alone? How did that feel? Just a, a brain that wouldn't shut up, or yeah, it was very much like this voice you know which i've come to know as as the ego from studying a course in miracles you know this voice like in the war of art when he talks about this terminator this the the, the shark in jaws you know what i mean it was like never stopped 24 hours a day and it would attack and attack and attack and attack and it never let up and even to the point i was in, in bed at night having panic attacks having horrendous nightmares hallucinating being terrified of thinking I was hearing things in the house, you know, and um, I, I became really, really scared. And, and you know, and I never really shared with people that I became really OCD. For example, if I lock myself in at night, I'm like, no one can get in. And I keep locking the door and I go back and I check if I'd lock the door and I'm going to check 
the door again and I need to check if I've locked the door. I need to be safe. You know, and um, the only respite I ever felt was when I, I was with Boss, the dog, you know, when I was out with the dog. So I didn't, um, I don't, people, I don't, people can relate to this, but just that wanting to get out of my own skin. It yeah. reminded me of the Lincoln Park song, you know, crawling in my skin. Like these wounds, they just wouldn't heal. I just didn't know what to do anymore. I, I not, there was nowhere to go, nowhere to turn, nobody to talk to. You know, I felt completely alone. Um, they talk about it, that it, phrase, you know, in, in depression or even in suicide, I can't live with myself anymore. As yeah. if I and myself are two different things. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And I, I think it's only really when now as a man on the other side of a murder, on the other side of, you know, who's continually breaking that vow now, who who is fully in my life now, uh, I really see, I think sometimes I just turned a blind eye to what happened. And it was only when I really started to explore it that I realized that that it, it, was, it was an awful time, some of it, you know. It, it, Did you ever it, consider taking your own life? I had a few moments when I was in the factory where I started to play Russian roulette with myself, with the machines. And I only spoke about this recently. I'd never spoken to El, my wife, about this. I just, what I used to do was uh, you'd have this big aluminium or steel press, you know, with like a block on it. And that block would then, you line it up and it would drop, you'd pull the guard down and boom, boom, it'd go into the pan, you know. And then what you'd have to do is put your hand inside the machine to push the pan in to do the next you know what i mean the next loft in yeah and what i started doing was tinkering with the head on the machine and i started to loosen the head the steel head on the machine so that there was a possibility it would fall off on me um and i did that a good few times and fortunately it never happened but i was kind of thinking there must be something i can do to stop this craziness you know yeah. and what happened at that time, I, 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 I discovered, I remembered uh, walking the dog one day and there was this cricket, what used to be a cricket um, hut on this hill, like a mini hill. And I, I'd seen it a few times walking to school. And one day I saw all these, this, I heard all this clanking and banging and, and, and the windows were all steamed up. And I, uh, I thought, I sort of peered in and I saw all these guys doing all these weird movements with all these weights. And I'm like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> but I was like really intrigued. Reminded me of the Hulk, you know, Lou Ferrigno. And I thought, and I, I, I sort of did that a few times, walking past, listening, peering in. And I was, I was really, really intrigued. And then one day I plucked up the courage to walk in and I, and I, and I, I said, I'd, I'd liked, can I, can I train? Can I do this? You know, and I've got all these Arnie wannabes around me and I'm this puny little guy. <laughs> and so at that time, what I didn't realize was I was basically just trying to figure out a new coat of armor for myself that was going to protect me from these bullies and, you know, the things that were going on around me. And uh, I only come, came to really understand later that most of the people who were in that gym had probably entered in there out of a sense of inferiority, you know, especially for men, you know, being this fear of being perceived as weak. And so in I went and I kind of dedicated myself to the craft. I, within six months, I'd done my first show and placed second uh, as a junior. 
and I became absolutely fascinated by it. And um, is that your first had, taste of success? Is that your first taste of really finding something you know, yeah, you're really good at? I think so. There was an incident that happened when I was younger, which I think kind of tainted my idea of success. There was a competition at school and it was uh, we had to do some drawings. It was for a toothpaste company and we had to do these drawings from uh, like different times during the day. This is what I look like first thing in the morning when I'm cleaning my teeth and blah, blah, blah. You know, anyway, I, I wasn't very confident. My dad was a good artist and. He was very much uh, of like, oh, come on, I can do it quicker myself. Come on, you know, and <laughs> bless him. And uh, anyway, he ended up doing most of the drawings for me. And I took it into school and I basically won the competition. I felt like Lance Armstrong. I said. And anyway, they basically took me to one side after they named me the winner and said, we don't think you did these drawings. You know, they're too good. You know, you're not exactly Mozart. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, they basically, it was only a simple prize, like a tube of Smarties or something. They basically took it off me and they Mm -hmm. basically shamed me in front of the class for having done that. And um, that was my first taste of having won something and having it taken away as quickly. Um, And I, I grew up very much in a family where dad was top dog. You know, I, I live very much in the shadow of my dad and, uh, and you know, it, it didn't matter what you did. He'd always done it better and certainly wasn't said with any malice, you know, and, and it was just the way it was. And so when I discovered bodybuilding, it was very much something that no one could touch me. It was my thing, you know, and even though looking back that first wave of bodybuilding that I did, you know, I went on to compete in quite a few shows and did very well. And at the same time had moments where it was really, really difficult. Um, I, uh, how can I say, I, um, realize now that, um, I was doing a lot of it to please my dad. I wanted my dad. I didn't think he loved me. And I know he did. He did. You know, he did. He was my dad, but I really, really believed that I was never going to be like him. And I tried so hard. And each time I, nothing was enough. Nothing was enough. And it really reached critical mass for me. I qualified for the Great Britain one year. And this was early 90s. And um, I, he, he never really came to see me in any of the shows. And he came to see me in this show. My family came. It was the Great Britain. And I remembered it was almost like I, it was like an upper limit problem. Like I, I went out my way to sabotage it and I didn't place at the Britain. And I remember looking out at the audience, just feeling that feeling of loneliness crept over me, stood out looking out at this audience. And it was like, I've got all these people looking back at me and I just feel so alone and so desperate. And I remember going back out to the audience and my dad, you know, in his northern way, he said, well, now you've got that out of the way. You can get yourself a proper bloody job. <laughs> <laughs> he never said, well, it was done. perfect. <laughs> I did carry on training, but around that time when I was doing the shows, I met my first girlfriend. And uh, this was um, when things really started to amp up for me around getting violent. I... I I'd, 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 what we spoke about earlier about how I'd somehow managed to suppress it, keep the lid on it, it bled out sideways sometime. And the training was helpful, you know, when you're training heavier and you're, you're, you're breathing and you're really trying to expel some of that pent-up energy, you know. Um, 
but the you know it wasn't lot we we met i met this i met jane and it it wasn't long before I started having these flashes of rage coming up again. You know, I really wanted to make the relationship work. I thought if I could just be like my dad, my dad's a really good husband. And if I could just be more like him and, and, and then, but in the back of my mind, I was like, but I'm never going to be like him because I'm a freak because I'm bad. You know, I'm bad. I must be. And so I, I went into this place of trying really, really hard to get it right, but nothing was enough. It didn't matter what I did, it wasn't enough. It was like trying to fill, it was like, for me, it was like trying to fill the Grand Canyon with a shovel, you know? And and then this one moment happened in the relationship where I perceived my partner to be taking the piss out of me, to be making fun of me. And I remembered in that moment we were on a holiday and in that moment I snapped and I didn't go near her. I, there was a, a, a waste paper bin nearby and my voice changed and I got up and I just kicked the bin across the room. And that was the first time it was like, oh, shit, you know, oh, shit. You let it out, yeah. It creeped this out. This is not good. This is not good, you know. And what happened was as a result of that, slowly but surely, we started to antagonize each other. Obviously, I'm not here to speak about her process and what she'd been through as a kid, you know, but she'd been through some pretty harrowing stuff herself. And the match was perfect, basically, you know, there was Velcro and it wasn't long before we were fighting, um, you know, and we were hurling abuse at each other and the push turned into a shove. And, uh, you know, sometimes it was her, sometimes it was me. And in the moments, I'm not going to lie, I felt powerful, you know, for it was probably once some of the first time I felt powerful. And that sounds really fucked up saying that I felt this power flowing through me like I was invincible in some way, like. I couldn't be hurt, you know? And yet, every time something happened, I would walk away and feel this deep sense of shame and guilt, which I just wanted to die. I, I couldn't cope. And bit by bit, things got really out of hand. I mean, really out of hand. Really stuff that I'm not proud of, that I feel really... It's risky and upsetting even for me to share it, but some of it's in the book. And I remember, um, you know, we we had, there were a few moments happened from, uh, you know, where, where some of the time it would be me defending myself. She was quite aggressive herself. And sometimes I'd just defend myself. And, and, and in my defense, I'd, because I was stronger, I'd, I'd stop her, basically. If that meant blocking her, I'd block her. If that meant holding her to the floor by her throat, I'd hold her to the floor by her throat. I'd do whatever was necessary. And it was awful. And and I felt so out of control. I, I, I just didn't know how to control it at the time. I felt, felt like it was like, oh, God, this is the Hulk. This is who I'm morphing into, and I can't stop it. And there was this one time when we were on a break somewhere in Wales, and... and, and we were supposed to be going to see a film at a cinema and it was always, I don't know about you, Nathan, but you know, in relationships, it's always over the stupidest thing that you end up fighting over. Yeah, and by the, time you, by the time you finish fighting, you don't even know what the argument fucking started about yeah. in the first place. Well, this one time we were supposedly going to see a, a film, uh, you know, we're going to the cinema and for some reason we were late. <laughs> we were late, simple as that. And we'd hired a car because at that time I didn't have a car. And we'd hired a car 
and we were staying at some caravan near the sea. And I remember we we set off down this dark country road to get to this cinema. And there was, uh, all I can hear in the passenger seat is this woman going on at me about what a dick I was, basically, for us being late and why we weren't there. And she's going on and on and on. And inside, I can feel this rage welling up inside of me. And this one moment was like everything that had happened to me had come to this point, you know, losing a testicle, the sexual abuse, the, the abuse at school, all everything that happened. It was like it all came down like a laser to this point. It was like a pressure cooker, like it, I could feel it coming, rising up inside him. And it was like, I don't think I can stop this. I don't think I can stop this. And I'm saying, stop, just stop. And she's going on and on and on. And the next minute, I put my fist straight through the windscreen and I put my foot down to the floor and I drove on the wrong side of the road at 100 miles an hour down this dark country lane with this woman screaming her head off next to me. And then I did, I just hit the brakes, the car skidded to a halt and I flung the door of the car open and I found myself running down this beach just absolutely just just completely fell apart running down this beach finally you know feeling these stones and this wind and this rain and the sea spray and I'm just there on my knees saying fuck help me please help me I cannot carry on living like this I think that was a turning point for me And I feel so ashamed about what I did. And I can't take it back, Nathan. Mm. So where does it go from here? I had a call from a friend. I spent some time in Canada. When I left the factory, the factory closed down and my auntie who lived in Canada said, come and stay with us for a while. And it was like, oh my God, this is my get out of jail card. Hmm. And it really opened my eyes to a different world. You know, Canada. I came from a really kind of closed down, oppressive, racist, racist town. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a real eye opener for me going to another country. Never been to another country. And it was a real time of exploration for me. I was still messed up. At that point, I'd started reading some self-help books. And, you know, it wasn't kind of normal for people to read those books, you know, because it's like, oh, you're a blog. What are you doing? And I remember I didn't have much money. And what I used to do was I used to go into the local bookshop. I'd sort of get a book like on football or something. And then I'd pick the self-help book that I wanted and put it inside the football book. And then I'd, I'd read the book and I said... Sometimes I'd even bring a bookmark with me and <laughs> put it in and then go back and read it again. And that was the start for me. I, I The first book I ever bought was Live Life First Class by a guy called Kenneth Thurston Hurst. And it, it was it was all very much about the kind of thoughts you think and, and, you know, and positive thinking. And I'd never really experienced that before. I didn't even know what a positive thought was, you know. And um, so 
I started to apply some of that stuff to training as well, you know, using mind over matter stuff and recording my voice and uh, and really challenging myself. But I, I then went on to read stuff like Shakti Gawain and Louise Hay, You Can Heal Your Life. And uh, But the, the problem I had with it was that, you know, it was all well and good, me standing in front of a mirror saying, you know, you are love, you are safe, you know, you are whole and all this. But on the inside, the paint was peeling off the walls. You know, I had a huge amount of anger. I was mixed up. I'd never talked about what had happened to me, you know, with the abuse and stuff. And so I felt a real conflict. Um, and so I went to Canada. Uh, this was, I was in the relationship at the time with Jane and I said, I need a break. I can't cope with this. And so I went and I buzzed off to Canada for a good few weeks she was appalled <laughs> that I'd do this. <laughs> and I said, it's something I have to do. And during that time when I was in Canada, I, 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 I met some really nice people and I, uh, I, I found a bookshop, uh, which was a new age bookshop called the Omega Center in Toronto. And oh my God, it was like Aladdin's cave. You've never seen a bookshop like it. It was huge. Wow. And I would spend a lot of time in there looking at different things. But the one thing that really... Uh, really fascinated me was A Course in Miracles. And I actually discovered that book uh, in a friend's lavatory. She used to leave it in there for light reading. Well, I don't <laughs> know if you know anything about A Course in Miracles, but it's anything but light reading. Who wrote um, The Course in Miracles? Who was the author? It was actually, cha it was actually channeled in the 70s by a lady called Helen Shuckman. And it's, right. basically a, it's basically a teaching on really, in a nutshell, relinquishing a thought system based on fear and returning back to our natural state, which is love. Um, so I, I didn't really understand what I was reading, but I was really intrigued by it. And around that time, I saw a sign outside the Omega Center one night for a talk um, um, by a guy called Dwayne O'Kane. And I, I went to the talk and I, I, I was desperate. I really was. I, I, I remember going into that talk and it was like this had become a life or death situation for me at this point. I, I was really, really right. I was on. I was right on the edge with this. What was the edge? Um, was the edge uh, suicide? Was the edge I'm going to hurt someone and go to prison? What, what was the edge? I think it, it was all there. I was terrified I was going to do something that, you know, that I was going to murder someone or uh, that I was going to do something I'd regret. And, 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 and at different times, I, it was really weird. I thought about the idea of suicide, but I'd not... I, I felt a bit of a scaredy cat. Like, it's not something I could imagine myself doing. You know, it was like, yeah. oh, you know, the, the, there was an appeal to it. There was definitely appeal. There was definitely some kind of appeal in the darkness, you know. I find it's hard for me to imagine what it would be like walking around just fearing, you know, having that fear of yourself, being scared of what you might do. I, yeah. I find that hard to imagine, like just going, fuck, I, I'm yeah. out of control here. I don't know what could make me snap. I don't know. I, I, yeah. I, the perfect set of circumstances could, I could snap and the wrong person's there at the wrong time and I could kill them. And I, I yeah. know that in this moment I don't have a way to stop that. Yeah, yeah. I was definitely frightened of that part of me in the same way Banner was frightened of the Hulk, you know. Mm. He was terrified of morphing into the Hulk. You know, he's always trying to keep his blood pressure low and, you know, his pulse rate and all the rest of it. Um, you know, I didn't walk around with like a heart rate monitor on or anything. but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but um, and you're slightly yeah, less so, green, I'm guessing. 
Yeah. So anyway, I, and the really stupid thing, I know on the outside, you know, I was this happy-go-lucky guy and people related to me and I was fun and I was jokey and I was wild, you know, I was always a bit kooky and a bit off the wall, you know, and I always did my own thing. I wanted with my hair, wore eyeliner, did what I wanted, you know, and, and yet there was always a part of me struggling to fit in and to be accepted. And I found that really difficult. So when I actually went to this first talk, I was really in a place where it was like this, nobody knows this, but this is, this is really like, this is life or death for me, you know? And I went to this talk and I sat there and I listened and I listened and I listened. And then I got up and I asked a question at the end. That took a lot of courage. But I think what happened around that time for me when I'd ask a question, it's almost like I was trying to speak from the solution like I had it, you know, mm. when really I didn't. I was pretty fucked up. So um, I left my contact details. And then I think the next morning I received a phone call from this guy called Paul, who's a friend of mine now and uh, a lovely friend. And he... He said to me, so uh, there's a workshop this weekend, you know, there's this workshop. Do you want to come? And it's three days or two days or whatever it was, three days. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, do you want to do it? And I'm like, well, I don't have any money, you know. He's like, don't worry about that. We'll figure that out later. He said, just be at this subway at this time. That's it. And I hung up. That was it. So I, I said to him at that point, my um partner jane had come over to canada and uh, and i said i've something i need to do i said there's this workshop and i said i, I get a really funny feeling it's going to help <laughs> and uh she said you dare go you dare go without me and i said i have to do it i have to do it and i'm gonna go and i went I didn't know what I was getting into. I I was terrified, but I knew something told me that I had to I had to do this. So I I went and I met this guy who I didn't really know at this and I got in this car and they drove out into the countryside in Canada. And uh, it was snowing, there was three foot of snow and we ended up in this retreat center and so there was nowhere to go. You couldn't get out, we were almost snowed in. And um and that's when my life changed. That's when wow. I... So how long was I, that course for? That was for three days. Three days, right. And there was this, you know, this, uh, I'd always, I, I, I was still very much in that place of, you know, the mask that I wore was the Joker, mm. you know, Mr. Humor. And I'd actually got through po probably a day and a half of the workshop and still nothing had happened for me because I was dicking around basically and you know really um making fun of everything and cracking jokes and one thing and another and then there's this one moment where the workshop leader says uh you know the facilitator he said you know something he said you're a funny guy aren't you he said come out to the front for a moment so there's about 40 people in this workshop they're all sat around in a circle and he calls me out to the front and he said, you know, some, he said, you're a real comedian. He said, well, go on then. He said, there's your stage. He said, make them laugh. And I remember in that moment thinking, oh, God, you know. Uh, initially, I thought, oh, this is great. I'm centre stage here. This is fucking great. And I looked around and I thought, <laughs> I started joking. I started mucking around. I started, a few people laughed. But what I didn't realize was that slowly, you know, bit by bit, 
my mask was starting to crack and eventually it fell off and I just wept. I just wept in front of this whole room. I cried so hard. It was like everything, all of it. I just let it all go. What was really beautiful, Nathan, was my biggest fear was that in, in revealing that part of me that was in so much pain and so much anguish, I was terrified that they'd, they'd leave the room, that they'd go, yes, you are a freak, you know, and run. And then the next minute, people in the room started stepping towards me until the whole room was holding me. And it felt like I'd come home. It was like, it felt like the first time in my life I'd truly been held. And I never looked back after that day. And I think that was the first time I really, truly broke the vow. And I shared with people what was happening for me and the pain I was in. I shared all of it. And um, what was what was really, really fascinating was for about a month after that workshop, I walked around Toronto in almost a Christ-like state. All, all I experienced was love. It was quite bizarre. People would come up to me and go, your eyes are different. Your whites of your eyes, they're like pure, like snow. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> what's happening to me? And it was just through this releasing, through this breaking the silence, through just starting to I, share and cry and open I up. Think, I think on the inside I was toxic, you know, that the toxicity levels have reached critical mass. Mm. And I think the release for me was, you know, in releasing that, it started to reveal the truth about who I was, that I was actually, you know, that I was actually a kind, loving man and that, what happened to me when I was a boy wasn't my fault. You know, I actually blame myself for what happened. Mm. You know, and it wasn't my fault. It wasn't my fault. I lost a testicle. It wasn't my fault. I was sexually abused. It wasn't my fault. I was being bullied. It wasn't my fault that the end result of that was that I became a violent man. That doesn't mean that I agree with what I did, but it had to come out somehow. It's this crazy thing, you know, like this, this, these upbringings, you know, and these things that go on and this vow of silence, you know, it does all lead to violence or depression or suicide or, you know, yeah, or just, yeah. you know, general feelings of um, just malaise and being miserable and unhappy and empty. And, yeah. um, you know, it's it, like you say, it's not to, certainly not to say that domestic violence is, is okay, but it's, you know, it's realising that there's two victims. There's two yeah. victims there. Definitely, definitely. I went on after that to, uh, I really got involved in the work and I ended up teaching it myself. I went mm. on to train as a, you know, part train as a counsellor and um, I started to run groups and uh, I figured that the best way I could help people was kind of by teaching the way out of my own struggle, really, because I think it's easy to sit there going, yeah, I don't experience any of that anymore. Well, that's just not true because, you know, I still wrestle on a daily basis with anxiety. Sometimes I get really down and, and you know, there's times when I struggle to talk about what's happening for me, you know, to describe my internal world. I find that difficult. And there are times when I struggle to cry. And yet equally, there are times when I will let it all hang out. 
you know and this is an um, interesting yeah. point you make and there's something i i'm still i find interesting myself is this you, you go through the recovery and obviously this recovery has been tremendous for you you know as soon as you mm. started down the path there was that immediate release and and mm. so there's this there's this huge freedom that comes from it but mm. there's this paradox right you know you feel better than you've ever felt before but you still have mm. the struggles mm. yeah so yeah. There's hope there, right? But there's also still, yeah, it's never perfect. No, I think one thing I've come to realise is that you know we all have a history. You know, we all, we've all been wounded in one way or another. Even if we think we've come from the world's perfect family, we've still been wounded, and some woundings look bigger than others. And uh, but it's still wounding, and I think. What I've come to realise, you know, in, in, in having been on a healing path for quite a few years now is that, you know, it's more about who I am in relationship to my struggle, that I'm not the struggle itself. You know, I can't change what happened, but I can change what I believe about what I think happened, you know, and I can step forward and I can teach the wisdom of that struggle, you know, from the wisdom of that, what I gained, what I learned about myself, um, you know, as a man. And like I said, it's ongoing. Um, I think we're, you know, men collectively, you know, we're struggling under this vow of silence and, and you know, the, we are slowly starting to wake up. But, you know, I, I always think about what Eckhart Tolle said, you know, in A New Earth, he said, you know, at a, at a time when, um, you know, we, we seem most unconscious, this, uh, sorry, you know, we're in a time where people seem more unconscious than ever, but at the same time, there seem to be more people waking up. Yeah. So I think we've kind of got, there seems to be that going on. Um, I think one thing that really, really became apparent to me, having you know done the research and you know writing of man out over the last four years, is that you know most of the things that we see in the world, you know, the violence, you know, the, the crime, um, all the crazy stuff, really, really stems from upholding this vow, silence. You know, if men have nowhere to go to express their pain and to talk about their feelings and to share what's happening for them, then then they start to experience loneliness. And th that loneliness leads to sometimes to depression. And yes, uh, the last resort can lead to suicide. At the same time, you know, the, it has to come out somehow and it starts to come out in really distorted ways. We do crazy things. You know, we push ourselves to the limits. So how you, if, if we if we looking at me now and if you know, we want to start making a difference you know you and I had the conversation before we started recording where I said yeah. you have to replace it with something you know the, the what we've got now is not working what do we replace it with and so mm. you, opening up and finding there's a couple of elements here I'm interested in your opinion one how do we find spaces where men can start to share and start to heal and start to you know open up and then two so many men I talk to, they just don't know how. You, you mentioned it, even yeah. now you still struggle. It's like, well, yeah. I think I've got all this violence or I've got all this pain or I've got this sadness mm. but, but deep down here, but I don't know how to get it out. I can't cry. I, yeah. can't, I, don't, yeah. know, what do you, I don't know what to talk about. So where do you go yeah. with that kind of thing? It's tricky, isn't it? I mean, it's obviously very helpful that there are men's movements and there are workshops that can support men in working together and expressing themselves and helping each other. So, the, 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 you know, that, that is happening. Um, you know, I've been involved in some men's workshops myself, you know, where you, you basically 
do sweat lodges and and um you know the native american sweat lodge and you basically sit around the campfire and you tell your dad's stories and you know you it's all it's all really good stuff um at the same time i think um part of the i think part of the dilemma we find ourselves in living under this vow of silence is that we we sort of uh, set up a situation where men were, we said, this is a safe place for you to express yourself. So you're going to get really like primal over the weekend and you're going to get really angry and you're going to let it all out, um, which is all fantastic. But somehow we have to get to the vulnerable boy underneath it. You know, the mask, the, the anger for me is a cover-up job for this lost boy who you know, if there's anything I've learned about this, about little Nige is that at different times I have to be willing to actually drop beneath the, the attack and blame and get to that, that guilt and shame and that, that little boy who, who I abandoned when I was six years old, when I lost the testicle. You know, I always believed it was other people who abandoned me when really it was me who abandoned me because I couldn't actually cope. Um, that... I, I reached a point where it became so painful that it was like, I don't want you in my life. Mm. I don't, I don't want you in my fucking life. In fact, I think I'll just rip my childhood out completely and start again. But the thing is, Nathan, it doesn't go away. That pain does not get any easier. It doesn't go away. And if there's anything I've learned about the universe, way it works is if you don't get something, it will very subtly try to get your attention. Yeah. And yeah. And then, but then you still don't get it. You still deny it. And then it tries to get your attention. But for example, initially, it just taps you on the shoulder. And then the second time, it takes a plank of wood and smacks you around the back of the head. Absolutely. <laughs> and Absolutely. some people still don't choose to get it. And that's okay. Yeah. But my experience has been, you know, the bigger the, the, um, the, the, bigger the pain you know, the bigger or the, the more overtly a way a man acts out, the bigger the world. And I, you know, I know when in, especially in new age circles, people say, you know, it's really important to move on, focus on the positive, blah, 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 blah. But I, I think before we can get to that, we need to create a safe space for men to be able to explore that pain and to mm. reveal that wound in and to really grieve that lost boy to really have an experience of reparenting themselves, to be the parent that they thought maybe they were denied as a child or as a boy. Um, I see this, um, yeah, I see this uh, a lot with men that they're usually the, I don't want to say the head of the family, that sounds kind of old school, but they're the, the, the support, you know, they're the ones that are expected to be the rock. And so yeah. everyone comes to them, um, their partner turns to them or their kids turn to them, but then they have no one to turn to. That's trying to stay strong right. for their family. That's um, right. Yeah. And that's how I run some, um, some men's groups and that's what I always encourage is this is your space to come and collapse. This is your space mm. to be vulnerable and just say what you're struggling with and just get unparalleled support around you. Yeah. Yeah. From other men. Yeah. Definitely. And what I love about men when they come together, there's a real urgency about it. You know, what, what I love about men is when they're on the other side of a the motor, they, they can have fun and they, they really connect and they support each other beyond the, the back slapping and the, you know, the banter, the playful banter. But the, but when it comes down to doing the work, 
the, the, it's almost like they the all the all the skills that they use to to uh, act out in the world the way they do, whether it's violently, competitively, or otherwise. Suddenly, they're using them same skills to help each other wake up, mm. and to actually start to support each other in revealing the pain they're in. And my experience has been around men is that they don't really stand for much bullshit when they're in a circle it's like will you fucking tell me what's going on absolutely we stop mucking around and i think that's the difference in when women work together my experience of having worked with women as well where women tend to be a little bit more gentler about it and a bit more subtle but i think this is where what i really what i'm trying to say is what's really beautiful about it is they're not compromising anything about any of the qualities of what you know that strength it's been mixed with the vulnerability and there's just it's just beautiful to witness it really is do you, do you still feel uh, the anger at all do you still feel the anger come yeah. up at times yeah i do i mm. i had um i i went back into bodybuilding competition after 23 years last year i i had a a tiny mad idea and <laughs> you know <laughs> just a tiny and one just a tiny one and i thought well I've done a lot of work on myself now. You know, this is not about going in there and proving anything to dad anymore. Dad's not even with us anymore. This is really about, you know, doing something for me and just seeing what happens. And mm. it very quickly gathered momentum. I mean, I, I started out, uh, I went to my first show and came second. And then I went to my second show and won. And then I came second in the Great Britain um, as a master, as an over 40. Wow. Congratulations. Uh, it was, thank you. It was a really, really big year. And for me, it very much became a metaphor for my life did training in terms of the struggles I've had in my life, you know, when Absolutely. I'm in the gym, and like the things that I've overcome. And it, it, and at different times, I really had to be mindful of the kind of thoughts that I was thinking, you know, that old way of thinking around, I'll show them the bastards, you know what I mean, what they did to me. And it's like, wait a minute, you know, and Elle was brilliant. She'd like, okay, you've got 10 minutes to dump all this shit out. You know, you've got a show to answer. You need to get back on track. And so, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think what I was trying to link that with, Nathan. I've forgotten what the initial um, Well, it was that, I, I asked you about the anger, you know, whether you still felt yes, the did, anger did, and where did. it popped up. Thank you. Yes. And uh, how can I say, for the longest time, my experience was the final experience I had with my ex-partner where a line was drawn in the sand was uh, I exploded one day and I threw a bedside cabinet at her and it just missed her head. And it, I, I, again, it was another of them moments where that would happen and then this intense guilt and shame would come up inside. I mean, I wanted to die, basically. And at that point, I, I, I drew a line in the sand. It was like, I will not do this again. I will not do this to myself or anyone. I'm not hurting anyone else. And I, I, it was then I really amped up the work I needed to do. And so, you know, I'm... I'm obviously in a, I'm married now to Eloa. Um, you know, we, we met in 2004, we got together 2008 and we got married in 2012. And we have a very, very, um, whole, what the course would describe as a holy relationship. We have a, a wonderful relationship. It is incredibly open in the way that we share with each other and that we, we give each other a space to, to, to heal, to share, to cry, to do all of it. Um, but what was really interesting was last year I was close to competing in the first show and I'd been dieting for the show for maybe five, six weeks at this point. And I was 
at my wits end really because I hadn't done a show before I was practicing posing every day putting a routine together doing high intensity workouts I was pretty exhausted and um and obviously on edge because of the dieting uh, you know it's it's quite it's quite a discipline and we were heading off to a friend's that day and it was a very similar situation to what happened in the car I described about earlier with with my ex when I, I don't worry I didn't fist through the windscreen but um L was going on about something to me and it's for me in my mind it started to amp up and I felt like I was being attacked and um I just felt you know just a, a, a just almost a second it was like the Hulk just went bam and he just came out of nowhere and I started punching the dashboard and I, I was eating some food and I smashed up the tub and this poor woman was petrified and I then did a very similar thing. I basically got out the car and started walking, didn't know where I was, ended up in a woods, sat under a tree crying and feeling completely ashamed thinking jesus is this how far i've come in all these years of work this is crazy and then i luckily the party we were going to are very conscious people you know they're all doing the work so it was a safe place for me to go in and share what happened and uh it kind of knocked i think it kind of damaged rapport for a little while between us and trust between us but we talked about it and we gave each other space to work through it, what happened for us, what it reminded us of and, and and gave us an opportunity to go back to the past and heal another mistaken belief, you know. And so that, that I, I do feel at different times it, I still get them surges, mm. but I tend to be able to control it a lot better now through deep breathing and just bringing myself back to the present moment and saying, look, your feet are on the ground, here you are, you know, where are you now? <laughs> you know. Developed a set of tools to kind of handle those things, those situations. I think so. I think so, because my experience of it has been when you, you know, when you're in it, you're actually in your past. You're actually projecting either a wound from your past or some fear-based belief from your past. So the actual person you're angry at isn't the person you're really angry at at all. It's just so, it's just trigger. some ghosts from your past. They're just a trigger. <laughs> so I think one of the, for me, one of the biggest lessons I've learned through studying A Course in Miracles and, uh, and really just practicing the work on myself moment to moment is, is really, really being accountable for the thoughts that I'm thinking, you know, and for really being accountable on, on taking that projection back as quickly as possible and saying, this is about me. This is, there's no one else here. This is not about anyone else. This is about a boy who was grievously wounded as a child, who, who at different times, sometimes that, that gets activated, you know, by something somebody says or does. And so for me, it's, it's important. I think for for most men, I think one of the most important messages I've given in the book, especially as we go into the second part of the book, The Rise of Man, it's a like, you have a decision to make. You have a decision to make whether you want to wake up or not. And you can't be in both places at the same time. That is something I have learned, you know, through years and years of doing this work. You cannot be in fear and love at the same time. You have to make a decision. And That's uh, beautiful, nice. It's, um, I could talk to you for hours about that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to yeah. um, I want to uh, put a plug in for the book before we go because um, the the book you're still working on the book but you have released the first part of it and you're going to give that away yeah. for free to the listeners is that right? We we are indeed. 
Fantastic. <laughs> it's, uh, we're really excited about the book. It's um, it's really for me. Uh, I'm really proud of of what I've done. Not only from s- some of the things that I've shared, you know, for taking that risk, but for just the level. And when I initially started out doing the work, I didn't even know what the hell I was writing about. It was like, okay, I'm I, I'm sat in this traffic jam, and this title comes out. Oh my. Breaking the Valmas arms. I'm like, oh no, not that. <laughs> you know, you realise what your mission is. Yeah, and then there was this whole thing where I'm like fighting it, going, no, not not me. Why me? I don't want to do this shit, you know. And I think it took a little while for me to to really warm to the idea because I didn't really know what I was supposed to be talking about. And it was only really when you know, a friend of mine came around and he said, oh, I've got a Mac for you. And Elle looked at me and she went, all oh, right. She said, maybe that's for the book. I went, OK. So I started writing and it was extremely, it's been quite a journey. Um, yeah. I've poured my heart out. I've cried <laughs> and I've screamed and shouted and I've written everywhere from parks to cafes to the living room to you name it. And you know, it's it's taken a lot of work and Elle came on board. Uh, she's come on board and she's been brilliant. And, you know, it's been a very interesting writing partnership. You know, at different times she's written, we've written together, she's ghostwritten, I've written. It's been really unusual, but the end result is quite stunning. Um, it is an inc- it's an incredibly powerful piece of work and I'm so really, called, really proud of it. It's called The it, Odd Man Out. Breaking it's the Valve Mail Silence. It's the Odd Man Out, Breaking the Valve Mail Silence. And it's uh, one of the other lines that came out when I was in the traffic jam was for men who want to know more about themselves and women who want to know more about the men in their lives. Because I think one, it's not just, you know, we, you know it, it's, it's hard for men to understand the dilemma they're in. Like you said earlier, this, they've got all these feelings and they're, they're really confused about it. It's like, I don't really know what's going on for me in here. And yet there's no space for me to talk about it. And so it's all swirling around. And what we've, you know, we, I think where many books end, where, you know, where we've chosen to pick up is where, is, is this, they describe the dilemma and they put in all the statistics and, you know, and the male suicide rates higher in men and and so on and so forth. And, and they fail to actually take the next step, which is to offer men a set of tools to actually help them navigate this internal landscape that they're struggling with and to find a way through that struggle. And that's, for me, what Odd Man Out is offering. It's it's offering a way through that struggle. And that in that way, it makes it kind of unique. So... Well, I love I'm it, really... and it's so needed. I'm so um, excited yeah. that you've got that those first parts yeah. available for free. I'll put a link in the show notes uh, where you can Dude, get yeah. the book. And um, yeah. no, it's just been a wonderful conversation. We spoke mm. at the start, and I said to you, what, what's the message that you want to put out to the people? And you said, I just want to tell my story. I want to tell my story and let let the message of my life and my story go out to the people. And you've done that beautifully. Moved me to tears a couple of times. So thank you for that. I really um, I felt it. And I know we've got to keep this conversation going. So hopefully you'll come back on the show and we'll, we'll carry on this this conversation because it's so in line with the mission of this podcast and uh, it's yeah. so so needed in both of our countries. 
and beyond. Most definitely, most definitely. And uh, I, I think um, Elle told me the link was, uh, Elle, if we send it to, um, because we haven't built a website yet, so the actual link is elloatkinson.com stroke Nathan. And there's going to be a link link there where you can grab the first chapter for free and find out more info basically on Facebook, Instagram and so on and so forth. So, you know, let's keep going here. Let's keep moving forward. Let's keep breaking the vow and spreading the word. It's so important. Yeah, beautiful. And I'll put all the links to yeah. your social medias and everything on the uh, the show notes as well. And yeah. hopefully when the book's finished, come well, back on the show and we'll, uh, we'll carry on the conversation. I'd love to. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really enjoyed this today and I really appreciate the work. I really appreciate the work you're doing as well, Nathan. Thank you so much. Thanks, Nigel. Thank you. Well, there you have it, folks. My wonderful, deep conversation with Nyes Atkinson. Boy, that really moved me, that one. So uh, I hope you enjoyed it as well. You can get uh, all the information about the episode on the post on my website at nathanseward.com, including the link to get a copy of uh, the first few pages of Nyes' book. As always, I appreciate it if you give this a like on Facebook, share it around. Uh, we need some more ratings and reviews on iTunes, so if you can find this show on the iTunes website and just give it a couple of stars, whatever you uh, feel is uh, appropriate, and give it a rating if you have time. It takes literally two minutes and makes a huge difference to me. I'd appreciate it if you can do that. Uh, I love you guys. Please keep up the good work, and I'll see you next week for episode 17 of the Nathan Seawood Show. That was The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men.